And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's tried that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. Yes, indeed. Today is Friday, and it's time again for another episode of Climate Change Roundtable. This is number 56 in a series. We've been doing this a little while. And today we're going to talk about the hottest topic on the planet this week. No, we're not talking about the temperature. We're talking about the IPCC report. Yeah, the IPCC AR6 synthesis report of climate change for 2023. It got released this week, and, well, you know the story behind that, those of you that follow. With me today are the usual suspects. We have uh, Sterling Burnett and Linnea Lucan, who are both going to help me basically dissect and pulverize this uh, climate change nonsense from the IPCC today. Good day to both of you. Hello, Anthony and Linnea. Hey, guys. Yeah, so let's talk about the release. I and you. Both of you have followed this closely, and both of you have written articles about it, as have I. Um, just a quick, you know, a few words summary. What's your take on this and the way the media has reacted to it? Well, it's pretty much same old, same old, right? Um, and in fact, some articles have come out saying that actually uh, journalists really need to stop reacting to these reports the way that they have been reacting. Um Basically, you know, you get these synthesis reports or the policymakers summaries for people uh, like politicians who can't read. And <laughs> they'll say things like, you know, I think they have, can read. They just can't interpret. <laughs> yeah. We have determined, you know, conclusively that climate change is an existential threat to the future and we need to stop it right now. And we need to to. Uh, redistribute wealth is something that they said in this one. We need to uh, focus on equity and stopping fossil fuel use in order to save the planet. But then when you actually read the working group reports, they're not, and they've been out for a while, they're not nearly supporting this kind of, you know, extreme conclusion. So it's pretty much worthless. Sterling? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... It, it's not clear to me how equity uh, changes the physics of the atmosphere and climate change. It's not clear to me how uh, transferring wealth will change the physics of the atmosphere and prevent climate change. Um, <laughs> this is a political document. And in fact, it admits, it, you know, there is not a single shred of new science presented in this document. It refers back to a document, uh, the AR61 report on physical sciences that came out in like August of 2021. So it's unclear to me, other than to keep the IPCC's reports in the headlines and to make more alarming claims and get generated headlines. And, and it did that. It, it was very successful in generating Headlines, including quotes saying the end is near. Uh, um, but it's unclear to me what the justification, you know, why they they issued this synthesis report other than to hype something that's not actually supported. I mean, this is the interesting thing. The alarming claims they make in this report aren't actually reported, supported by the physical science report that it references back to. So um, this is a PR stunt. This is a hey, we're still relevant, uh, and, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the end is, is really, really, really near this time. It's not, it's not like it was, you know, five years ago or even two years ago. It's really bad now, um, despite the fact that we've passed, you know, multiple climate treaties and uh, um, 
evidently they've had no effect. But if we just try harder, 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 uh, we'll get it right. Yep. Well, you know, Sterling, you, you touched upon the equity and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, eating bugs will change the weather, right? Right? Uh, anyway. Not, not, yeah, not as far as I can tell. Not, <laughs> by the way, not, not by the way, that I'm willing to uh, voluntarily uh, experiment, you know, be using that experiment. Uh, my ancestors um, evolved over generations to get away from eating bugs if they probably had to early uh, in their, in their, uh, in their history, they actually like sort of to some extent processed foods or foods that they put on the table, table themselves. Things like, I don't know, steak, uh, burgers, barbecue. I'm Texan after all. And then, you know, yeah, we throw in some vegetable corn and, 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 and stuff. And protein progressivism. <laughs> yeah. I read an article, I think just yesterday that was talking about how um, animal rights activists are actually really concerned about the sheep or the sheer rate rising in, uh, you know, bug farms and that where we need to be careful because we might be treating the bugs badly at these. <laughs> I, you laugh, but I am not kidding. I read that article oh. just yesterday. It's I, so we're I, not even going to get to have bugs. They're no, gonna I have no doubt. Too much I have no from bugs. I want ca I want cage free bugs on my plate. Cage free, <laughs> cruelty, cruelty, cruelty. Pretty soon, there's going to be a peer reviewed article talking about how bugs' feelings are being, you know, violated and all this crap. Okay, yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's get on to the science. We have a graph that we want to show you here, and this graph shows this 1.5 degrees centigrade temperature rise. And we're currently at 1.21 degrees centigrade. This is the global average temperature as reported by the inaccurate and wildly biased uh, surface station temperature network that I've reported on repeatedly. And so the panic is we're going to hit 1.5 degrees centigrade by 2035. Oh, no. That's the panic. That's the panic, right? Mm -hmm. So the media response from all of this uh, you know, we've got uh, the Guardian on Monday said this. They they basically just went berserk uh, and said, scientists deliver final warning on climate crisis. Act now or it's too late. Ugh. But it gets worse. The UN, the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres, says the climate time bomb is ticking. But the latest IPCC report shows that we have the knowledge and resources to tackle the climate crisis. But we need to act now to ensure a livable planet in the future. You know, you okay, could have so, found similar headlines, you know, five years ago. With, exactly. With AR5, when AR4 came out, similar headlines. When AR3 came out, similar headlines. And we've passed all those deadlines. And uh, if they were right before... We should already be uh, following the uh, dictum of Omar Khayyam and eat, drink, and be, be merry before tomorrow we die. Except for yep. tomorrow we didn't die. Right. So here's 2021 from The Guardian. You know, the, the Guardian is ever reliably alarmed. They're our favorite newspaper because they can always take something that's minuscule and inflate it beyond the universe's bounds. It's, it's They're really good at it. So in 2021, almost out of time, stark warning from scientists on climate disaster. And then we've got one from just a few years back previously. This is 2007 when they released AR4. UN scientists warned time is running out to tackle global warming. Global warming is already here and could be irreversible. Oof. It's, it's exactly like Linnea said. Same-o, same-o. Same set of numbers, same headlines, same alarmism, nothing new. Well, you know, they're making they, they, you could go back more than 100 years, right? You could mm -hmm. in, in the in the uh, in the 70s, the Club of Rome was predicting this and Paul Ehrlich was predicting the end of the world and and uh, see, you know, water on the streets um, in 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 the 19th century. You know, people were it, it, before 2000, right? The end of the world was coming. Why? Because of uh, um the Y2K problem with computers and systems were going to crash. Uh, the end was near. 
And then at the 19th century, people were staying on street corners. The millennialists were staying on street corners saying, oh, well, you know, this is when all the people predict that uh, uh, God was coming back to earth and taking us all up. So you got to repent. The end is near. It, 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 it's just sometimes it's the same uh, doomsayers switching gears and just predicting doom from another source. But there's always somebody someplace saying the world is coming to an end and the only solution is always bigger government and humans repenting from their sins of the past. Yeah, and they're crying wolf on a regular basis, right? It, 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 again and again and again, they're crying wolf. And this is one of my favorite cartoons. This is from Rick McKee from the Augusta Chronicle in 2014 when they introduced AR5. We really mean it this time. It's the same thing. And interestingly enough, I don't know if any of you remember or not, uh, he has that little sidebar there about the Himalayan glaciers. Well, remember that? We blew that out of the water on WUWT a few years ago, where basically the UN said that Himalayan glaciers are all going to be gone by 2035. And then we discovered that it was based on faulty data. We called them out and the whole thing was retracted. That's how good their science is, right? Yeah, it was based on the statement, the non-peer-reviewed statement of a single environmental group and the scientists whose work that they supposedly referenced called uh, the IPCC out on it saying, yeah, that I, never said, I never said that. That's There's no evidence whatsoever they're going to disappear uh, by 2035. Uh, this is just a lie. And, you know, uh, and, and then the head of the IPCC at the time, uh, uh, a train engineer who uh, <laughs> uh, who uh, got in trouble for uh, supposed sexual harassment. Um, Pakari, yeah, he uh, he he had to back you know backtrack and and walk that back. Right, and he he made the commentary at the time what we were discussing constituted voodoo science because it conflicted with his view of the world. We're doing voodoo science, but in the end. Real science, real facts, won the day. Uh, anyway. Real quick, thank you, Speedy, for uh, the super chat there. Um, and, and you're totally right. Every single day, it's a new end-of-the-world panic. Um, oftentimes, it is related to climate, or they'll connect pretty much anything that they can come up with to climate change in one way or another. And oftentimes, it is the... Um, the effect of their policies itself that they'll then go and try to blame on climate change. Right. Right. Okay. So the commentary that's come out of, uh, you know, we've seen the media commentary and it's predictable and same-o, same-o. But Dr. Roger Pilkey Jr., a climatologist, reviewed the whole report and had this to say. The IPCC has reduced itself to the sort of content-free cheerleading that is so common in the climate space. Something should, somebody should do something, damn it. And that's the whole essence of their argument and the whole essence of the argument of activists worldwide. And yet, here we are, same old, same old, after what, 30 years of this stuff now? Well, that's sort of more telling than you think, Anthony. You said it. Here we are. <laughs> I I I uh, was not called up uh, during the rapture. Um, <laughs> the 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 has that uh, happened? I missed that. Dal yeah, Dal Dallas is not underwater, nor despite could you know regular tornadoes, uh, has it been wiped off the map? Uh, Galveston's still here. You know, it, it's it, anywhere you look. The predictions are wrong. Here we are. We're still here, folks. Yep. Yep. It doesn't get any better, it seems. They don't seem to have learned from mistakes. Like, for example, back in uh, around 2000, the UN put up this thing on their website saying that 50 million climate refugees would be disappearing by, uh, I don't know, 2010. Yeah, that's what it was. Anyway, so... 2010 approaches, and all of a sudden, they take that thing off of their website. We found that on What's Up With That and posted on it. And they hid it, and they did a bad job, and we found it, and we proved it. You know, 50 million climate refugees. Well, so far, not a single one has been proven to exist 
unless you count somebody who wants to fly from New York to Miami during the winter, you know, just to get to the beach. I don't think that's a climate refugee, even though the climates are vastly different. The whole no. point of this is, is that it, the claims are easily uh, disproven. Go ahead, Linnea. I think Sterling had something to say. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, the same the same thing is true with with uh, the the glaciers in uh, uh, the ice. Uh, yeah, the ice in Glacier National Park. You know, under Obama, they actually put up signs. The Park Service put up signs saying, "Oh, <laughs> these glaciers are going to disappear in a very short period of time." And uh, when people came out and said, "Well, no, that's not what the data shows. In fact, they've been shrinking for a long time." but there's no evidence they're going to disappear right away. Uh, the park service had to go back in and withdraw them out of embarrassment. Um, and you know, the same thing is, uh, in Africa, uh, Mount, um, Kilimanjaro, the snows of Kilimanjaro have not disappeared. Uh, so it's, it's just one thing after another. And the, the thing about it is being a climate alarmist means never having to say you're wrong or sorry. <laughs> That's pretty. That that's uh, pretty much the essence of it, isn't it? Okay, so let's go back to the science briefly. Here's the claim: we're going to go from 1.21 degrees centigrade globally for temperature to 1.5 degrees centigrade by April of 2035. Oh no! It's terrible. It's catastrophic. It's doom. Okay, if you think so. But here's some real data. Now, this is a graph of the Global Historical Climate Network. Uh, land temperatures averaged over 10,000 different points on the planet's surface. And it's got two other data sets in there. The um, Climate Research Unit uh, from England, Crew Temp 6, uh, 4.6, I guess it is. Uh, and then the Berkeley uh, Earth Surface data set. And this goes all the way back to 1750. And so an interesting thing there, look at the scale on the left. Look at the difference. We've already got gotten past 1.5 degrees centigrade of warming since 1750. But maybe that's a little hard to see. Let's look at the next graph. This next graph, done by my friend Willis Etchenbach for What's Up With That, kind of sums it up really much more succinctly. So a century ago, the land was two degrees colder. Two centuries ago, the land was three degrees colder. Two and a half centuries ago, it was four degrees cooler. So we've gone through four degrees of warming since 1750, we're still here. Oh, gosh. But, you know, follow the science. That's what we got to do. Right, folks? Follow, <laughs> no, it's, follow, it's follow their science is what they want you to do. And, and that's not science. Yeah. Yeah. And so global weather and climate disasters, they're not happening. They're actually going down. I mean, they're happening, but they're diminishing in frequency. This has been known for some time. Where's the kaboom? Where's uh, it? Where is it? Not happening. Where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. <laughs> Poor thing. Exactly. Oh. So, so this is something, Anthony. I love this chart because I recently I I have glimpsed a few conversations lately. Um, where people are saying, uh, you know, well, if, you know, why haven't we been having the disasters that you guys have been predicting? And what the alarmists come back with is, well, we've had all these climate conferences that have um, fixed the emissions problem for us gradually over time. Mm -hmm. And this just knocks that out. <laughs> I mean, it pretty well destroys that argument. Oh, in fact, if you look at that graphic, it's it's interesting. I will I will wager. I, I'm just looking doing. You know, I'm just eyeballing it. That the trend line for emissions was slower before the first con climate conference than it has been since climate conferences began. <laughs> now, maybe that's the uptick from the climate conferences themselves. Uh, you know, twenty thousand people going different places in jet airplanes and private cars and and eating expensive non buggy meals. Um, but uh, I'm just looking at the trend line. It looks to me like it's slower before that first uh, Rio conference uh, than it has been since. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to continue. I mean, 
there's there have been a lot of articles lately that um i mean it's disturbing for a different reason i'm not overly worried about uh you know fossil fuel emissions causing climate change but i am a little bit concerned about the political shifts that are happening in regards to oil trading um you see russia and china signing off on massive deals and then just today we learned that the uh, state oil company of Brazil has said that they intend to be the last oil company standing, that they have no plans whatsoever to reduce <laughs> their uh, production. In I'm fact, just... the leader of the um, state-owned company said that he intends to increase oil production for Brazil and his company will be the last one producing oil for the world because they'll never stop. So it's... Uh, it's not good that we have, you know, a group of countries that are not necessarily our friends. Brazil's all right, I guess. But but China and Russia, especially holding hands with Brazil and starting to talk to Iran um, to form this different set of oil trading companies or countries. Yeah. Um, they're not planning on reducing emissions. I'll tell you that much. They're not worried about that at all. And they are not our friends. So what it looks like we're setting ourselves up to do is have this little corner of the West with Europe and North America that are going to be sitting in the dark because we decided that we don't <laughs> want to use fossil fuels anymore. And the rest of the world will just keep humming along. Right. And the CO2 will keep going up and nothing will change. My, same you know, old, my, same old. my suspicion is that while Brazil was open in saying this, that's the same viewpoint of uh, Venezuela, with Maduro, uh, with Nigeria, with uh, all the Arab countries. I, I've never seen Saudi Arabia saying, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna phase out oil production." Uh, Russia, I haven't seen Putin say he was phasing out oil production or gas production. Right, and they China, want their permafrost to, to thaw yeah. out a little bit. And China, China is laughing at the idea that they would reduce oil production, and you know. The one thing, everyone, I keep hearing people applaud China as their CO2 emissions grow. They're doing the right things, people say. Well, yeah, they're adding uh, wind turbines and solar on the margin as they add a lot more coal, oil, and natural gas. Um, they said, we're going to stop funding coal projects in other countries. Now, we'll see if over time they do that. But regardless of whether they do that, I, mean, I, th I think they'll be funding them through the back door somehow because of the Silk and Road Initiative. But regardless of whether they do that, they're not doing it in mainland China. <laughs> right. Well, they are. They, but that's the thing, Sterling. China is doing exactly what you should do, yeah. which is virtue signal verbally about how you are becoming more green, about how the rest of the world needs to catch up and install as many wind turbines and solar panels as you are. You know, there are photographs have come out of China uh, just paving over mountains and solar panels. And they're so they're putting, like you said, marginally all of the wind and solar and lining the pockets of what companies are making wind and solar. Oh, yeah. Chinese companies, which are largely in charge of uh, many of the materials that go into making wind and solar. And then they're saying, yeah, Western world, you need to invest in more wind and solar to catch up with us. And so they're just they're they are absolutely laughing at us right to our faces. Mm -hmm. And um, there's nothing I mean, unless we drop the net zero nonsense, we are going to get absolutely steamrolled. Yep. And it's it's already happening. I mean, you know, we've seen this 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 whole thing again and again and again, where the United States tries to virtue signal and do these things. And in fact, the United States has reduced its CO2 emissions over the last decade. Um, and it's not making any difference compared to the rest of the world. They're just humming along, as Linnea points out, merrily on their way, ignoring our virtue signaling because they have their own country to run, their own agenda to follow. And it does not include you know, climate change. It's just climate change virtue signaling is that it is just not conducive to productivity. And if you want to maintain a productive uh, country, well, you just basically got to give lip service and then do something else. Right, guys? Right. If you pull your head out of the septic pit, that is the alarmist journalism, 
and take a look at what other countries are doing while patting us on the back for reducing emissions, it is humiliating. Um, I, th I think when they praise China, uh, they're actually not praising them for their climate work. They, they, they genuflect to climate. That's virtue. They're praising them because they're a dictatorship and that's what they want here. They, they want the great reset to remake the economy by the elitist who claim to believe what uh, the activists believe, but in reality, it's all about them living better and getting richer on the backs of the downtrodden. Yeah. So let's talk about climate disasters. You know, the whole thing that the temperature is supposed to give us, the increase in temperature, is excess climate disasters. You know, more hurricanes, more tornadoes, more droughts, more rain, more flooding, whatever. None of this stuff proves true. But the real telling thing is that climate-related deaths from 1920 to 21 have approached zero. The weather was far more erratic back around 1920. And the great thing about global warming is, is because it changes the differential in temperature between the poles and the equator, making it less different. It, it kind of quells the storms. And so we've had less climate disasters as a result. And this data plotted by Dr. Bjorn Lomberg uh, uses data from the International Database on Disasters. And this is not something that anybody disputes. And yet, here's the proof. Nothing's happening. And bad. None of the bad predictions are coming true. And, you know, we've done this on climate realism again and again and again, virtually every day. We are skewering some sort of a claim about something getting worse or something disappearing. Uh, this past week, it was coffee. Oh, yeah, coffee's going to disappear, you know, and all that. It's just rubbish. When you look at crop yields, it, they're actually inverted from this graph. They're rising no matter what. And the claims of climate change reducing crop yields is just absolute bunk. And so what do you guys have to say about all of this? You know, Anthony, as you talk about coffee, I, I see my cup is empty. So perhaps... There's some, I still have a little. Salute. There's, yeah, perhaps there's some uh, truth to that, even though I was the one that wrote about it. Oh, wait, if I go downstairs, I can pour me another cup. Um, <laughs> you know, the it, it's not, you know, the climate-related deaths are way down, but it's not primarily that all the climate-related disasters have declined that substantially. It's that as the world has gotten wealthier, uh, <laughs> we have better, we, you know, we respond to emergencies better. We prepare for emergencies better. We have hardened infrastructure. So fewer people die, you know, where they're still dying in the thousands, you know, look, I, I would wager that almost that entire decline that you showed, I would, I would guess probably 80% of it comes in developed countries that, that, you know, when the Galveston earth, I mean, when the Galveston hurricane occurred or the uh, San Francisco earthquake, Lots and lots of people died. Similar earthquake happens uh, during the World Series a few uh, years ago. Not as many people died. S similar hurricane struck Galveston. Not nearly as many people died. Or in New Orleans. Well, uh, wealthy countries have really seen a decline. But poorer countries are still having a lot of deaths from these things. Uh, but as they get richer, that's declining too. Yeah. Well, and I, I've made this point recently, but I would love to see how someone plans to make hurricane rated glass and other building materials without the use of fossil fuels. I would love to see that. Fossil fuels are the backbone of how we have been able to harden ourselves against um, having, you know, worse impacts from natural disasters. Um, they help us to uh, seal in wood and stuff so that it doesn't suffer from water in, in intrusion. And I, it's incredible to me that there seems to be a substantial short-sightedness to the people who say like, oh, just leave it in the ground. No more oil. We don't need it. We can make everything out of hemp or whatever it is that they try to say now, or like potato plastic for everything. No, cellulosic, <laughs> cellulosic plastic. And, yeah, exactly. And, and how are they growing the cellulose, you know, the corn that goes to cellulose or the hemp? 
crazy. All right. So um, the summary for policymakers that was introduced from the AR6 has been uh, something that contained a lot of, well, nuggets, let's, shall we say. And um, these nuggets of wisdom, or maybe they're science, or maybe they're both, I don't know, um, are probably worth taking a look at here briefly. Uh, so why don't we go through that and, and look at the summary for policymakers and uh, take a quick sort of a, you know, shoot some of them down. Um, Must we? It's so Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> all right. Human activities, principally through the emissions of greenhouse gases, have unequivocally caused global warming and global surface temperatures reaching 1.1 degrees C above 1850 to 1900 averages by 2020. Um, greenhouse gas emissions are increasing. And um, lifestyles and patterns and consumptions and productions, oh my, everything's getting disrupted, basically. That's what they say. Where is it? I don't know. I would. I have a problem right away. They talk about principally through greenhouse gas emissions, um, but then they do mention change in land use. And I think that there seems to be quite a bit more evidence that land use change has a much more immediate, at least local impact on temperature than any greenhouse gas possibly could. Um, so that's that's kind of fun that they bury the lead there. Yeah. Yeah. You so, know, um, a few years ahead, ago, a few years ago, I was on stage with a climate scientist and uh, he was supposed to be there. We were we we're actually debating two, two sets, two sides three people on a side and he was supposed to be on, uh, on the other side. They brought him in believing he was a climate alarmist because they'd worked with him before. And, um, he told the tale of how he got funding for his research on the decline of glaciers in Mexico. And so he wrote a lot of, he wrote ski, uh, funders from ski organizations and funder from the U S government funders for a few other saying his research is to, examine the impact of climate change on glaciers in Mexico. And what he'd revealed is that he never believed climate change was changing the glaciers of Mexico, that uh, temperatures had not changed atop the mountain, that he suspected what was happening is that farmers were farming uh, slash and burn agriculture farther and farther up the sides of the mountain. Uh, and that was putting depositing soot on the uh, snow and ice. And of course, that's what his research found. But he got the money because he said climate change. Uh, and you know, I've done lots of effort looking at the surface. You know, Linnea, you talk about land use as being a big factor. You're right. I mean, look at there's very little land left that we have not touched or changed or modified in some way. You know, we've cut down trees, we, we've changed the landscape, you know, where cities are at dramatically. Uh, we have added all this asphalt and concrete and infrastructure. Uh, we have waste heat coming from electric power generation and distribution uh, and internal combustion engines. And yet you never see any of these reports talking about these factors. They are solely focused like a, like a hound dog on a fox on CO2. They don't want to look either way because they're wearing blinders. And the, the bottom line is, is that there's the, the the climate system is incredibly complex. There are literally hundreds of factors involved with how the climate changes, and it's impossible to predict when you've got a system that complex and that chaotic what it's actually going to do. The temperature going up isn't necessarily indicative of climate change. It may be more indicative of land use change and human factors such as what I've discovered with heat sinks and surfaces near the thermometers. Perfect example of this. Chicago O'Hare Airport. Now, they still measure the temperature at Chicago O'Hare Airport, and, but when the airport was first put together, way back, it was a whole different scenario. It didn't have all this asphalt, concrete, and terminals, and tarmacs, and all this stuff. Back then, it was called Orchard Field. And that's why the, the identifier on your luggage tag when you go to Chicago says ORD, or Orchard Field. So imagine the difference in temperature between measuring it in an orchard versus measuring it in the middle of the tarmac in Chicago at the airport. And that pretty much sums up the issue of climate change temperature. 
they're measuring it in these places over a hundred years, but the the area around where the thermometer is has changed dramatically. So what are we really measuring? Are we measuring climate change or are we measuring human change? Yeah, you, you talk about land use changes. I, I live in Dallas, right? Um, I live in a suburb of Dallas. This whole region of North Texas, North uh, uh, East Texas, was part of what was called the Southern Great Plains 150 years ago. 200 years ago. It was grassland. The only trees that existed here were along rivers. Um, buffalo roamed in and out. Uh, various Indian tribes hunted the buffalo roaming in and out, and they burnt the grass pretty regularly to uh, keep it green and growing for the buffalo. Uh, but they also suppressed tree growth because buffalo don't eat trees, they eat grass. Uh, now, Dallas and the surrounding area, the DFW metropolitan area and all the huge suburbs that exist here now have just changed it. This is no longer the plains. There are more acres of trees in the DFW metropolitan area, not just in the parks, but I'm just talking about everybody's front yard. There's more greenery here than existed 150 years ago. And it has likely impacted, um, Rainfall amounts, in, in, increasing it slightly. The Southern Great Plains were fairly arid. Uh, it's not arid here now. Um, it, it, land use changes make a difference. Yeah, so here we go. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, chirosphere, biosphere have occurred. Human-caused climate change is already affecting weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. And this has led to widespread adverse impact and losses and damages. And oh my, vulnerable communities who have historically contributed the least to current climate change are disproportionately affected. Where there's that equity thing again, Sterling. You mean those communities where hunger and malnutrition has dropped the fastest in the last 30 years? <laughs> where, where hundreds of millions or billions of people are no longer starving, though there's still a lot of hunger and malnutrition over there. Uh, the data shows that hundreds of millions of people uh, have in, in, food production for them and and nutrition for them has improved despite the warming. Uh, I'm not sure what adverse impacts are talking about. We've already showed that deaths, Due to weather-related events, or have declined markedly. Hunger-related deaths have declined markedly. Temperature-related deaths have declined markedly. Uh, food production has increased dramatically, uh, and so they say it is affecting and 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 harming and and doing this. Show me the data. Well, they have the data. In the Working Group 1 report on physical sciences, there are only two categories of extreme weather that they say that they have attribution and detection, even just detection for. And that's heat waves. They say that they have adequate data to show that there have been more extreme warm days, which it's kind of questionable, but I'll, I'll give them that for, this, for the context of this conversation. And... Um, they said that, what's the other one? Drought. Yeah, two they types of drought. drought. A two specific, yeah, yeah, specific category of drought, which is agricultural or ecological drought, which is just a, a soil moisture thing. Has nothing to do with weird, like weirdly low amounts of precipitation. Has nothing to do with stream levels decreasing. Nothing like that. There's no groundwater effect. It's a soil moisture content issue. Um, those are the only two categories that they have even detected human impact of global warming on. Um, and that's admitted in the IPCC working group reports. And the fact that people keep citing these reports while claiming the opposite is just proof that they do not read it or that they latch on to like one or two sentences in their you know, thousands and thousands of word paragraphs that, and I've been reading this thing this week. So uh, if I sound a little embittered by it, it's because I got 
a headache reading it the other day. And so I'm pretty Science is hard. <laughs> so I'm pretty mad because they definitely um it's not that what they're talking about is all that complex, but uh the way that they phrase things is deceptive, I think. And I think that yeah. they know it. Um, well, let's let, let's dig down into that claim though. Even even there on the two types of drought, two of the four types of drought. Um they identified 47 regions that they measured drought across, across around the world, 47 areas. Only 12 of those areas did they uh, did they uh, find uh, the increase in those two types of drought. And in only two of those regions were they did they say that they had medium confidence that humans were causing it. The other uh, 10 regions, they, they did they couldn't attribute it to human action. So <laughs> even there, it's very deceptive. And you know what? It might be that humans are causing the soil moisture drying. You know why? Because we're building wind turbines everywhere and wind turbines dry the soil. <laughs> when, when you suddenly cover thousands of acres with these things that are drying the soil, study after study shows, uh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe we are causing it. It's just not climate change. Well, and I think the I think that the land use thing would probably lead to some of that too. You know, if you are locally increasing the temperature by changing, you mm -hmm. know, the amount of asphalt and stuff that you have, you might increase uh, shallow depth soil evaporation, right? I think that 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 shouldn't be something that you would have to do. You know, some thirty year study to figure might be happening, right? Um, but I. The fact that the fact that meteorological drought is not changing or getting worse, which is which means it's the drought that comes from getting too little rain um, or too little snow. The fact that that's not getting worse, and the fact that a um, groundwater-related drought, as in our aquifers and the rivers and lakes and stuff, that drought has not been found to be getting worse. Um, I don't know. I think it, it kind of sounds like they're splitting hairs a little bit on this one. Yeah. You know, and while you're talking about drought, Linnea, here in California, well, not, I'm not in California anymore. I escaped. But um, in California, they are still talking about the whole thing about drought. They still have drought on their minds, even though we've had this fantastic water year where basically, you know, we had deluges, floods, snowpack. Uh, the second largest in measured history, uh, and they're still talking about drought, and they're still talking about not making water deliveries and so forth. And this seems to be a mindset that the government has, that they just want to cling to these disaster claims, even though the evidence right in front of their eyes says different. And I don't know why they do that. Do you guys have any ideas on why they're so focused on this and not willing to look at reality? Um, I think I'm sorry. I'm asking you to think about what politicians think, and I know that's pretty much impossible. So. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I don't think I can put myself in people's minds. I'm not, any any better than a psychologist can describe somebody's psychological state whom they never met and spoken to. Uh, other than one thing, we can say about politicians throughout history: they like more power, and so. Uh, if the CO2 narrative, if 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 humans are causing climate change, gives government more power over people's lives, they're generally in favor of that. You know, there's a question up that I'd like to address real quick because I saw this and I think this is important because I hear it a lot. Um, it is claimed that the fossil fuel industry gets more money than green energy. In the United States, that's absolutely false. Um, per unit of energy produced green energy, solar, wind, they get far more in subsidies. Uh, they also get to write off their equipment just like the fossil fuel industry is. The fossil fuel industry is much bigger, so it gets a larger deduction for all of its equipment, but it's not subsidized. They don't get they don't get funds actually going out of the treasury to them. Now, worldwide, this is a fact. Fossil fuels are subsidized dramatically, but they're subsidized by governments. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's the retail side that is subsidized. If you go to Venezuela today, you can buy gasoline at a highly subsidized price, you know, uh, uh, cents on the liter. So um, 
governments are artificially keeping the price of gasoline and diesel cheap in those countries to make their people happy. Now that is a subsidy, but it's not to the industry. It's, it's to the people. And every time they try and get rid of that, you see riots in the streets. Yeah. You know, and the whole bottom line about the way that these folks look at carbon dioxide and the way it's going to affect temperature, they all present it in a linear fashion. More carbon dioxide is getting put up in the atmosphere. Therefore, it's going to get warmer. And they think that it is a true linear relationship, one-to-one. -one. But it's not like that at all. It's a logarithmic relationship. Here's a graph published on um, WhatsApp with that a while ago. And it's part of an article about climate sensitivity. Basically, how much the temperature will go up if we double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, this graph, as you can see, has a slope to it. That's a logarithmic graph. And to help you understand what's really going on, I'm going to use a little story. Now, we are pretty close to the top of the graph there where the sensitivity to CO2 because of our current concentration is already getting less and less. It's diminishing as we go on. So here's a story to help you understand that. So let's say you go to a restaurant and you order some soup. You are served the bowl of soup, you taste it, and you think, eh, it's a little bland, need some salt. Put a little salt in it, taste it again. Hmm, eh, maybe a little more. And then, so you grab the salt shaker again and you start shaking it in. And as you come up, the waiter comes up and says, oh, hey, uh, do you need anything else? And you're still shaking salt into it. And you didn't realize, oh, you put too much salt in it and you taste it. It's now too salty and you can't eat it. Well, what's happened there is that your taste buds, uh, sensitivity to salt has been saturated. No matter how much more salt you put in that soup, it's still going to taste the same. And that's similar to how it is in the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. Once you get past a certain point on the logarithmic scale, adding more carbon dioxide really has very little effect with temperature. And yet the climate alarmists and even the IPCC think with these blinders on, you know, CO2 linear going straight up to hell. That's the way they think of it. And that's the problem. They're not addressing reality. Thoughts? Yeah, saturation effects been known for a long time and ignored for a long, equally long time. Right. So why do you think they don't address it? Well, it's inconvenient for one. <laughs> uh, two, it's an inconvenient also, truth. Yeah, I think that um, our basic. Uh, like high school, middle school level education has failed us in, because of the um, the way that they teach us greenhouse effect. I think that that makes it very difficult for us to understand the nuances in the way that um, energy reaches the surface of the earth and leaves, because the way that we think about it is as a greenhouse, right? Heat energy comes in and it then it can't get out and that's it. And all of these materials are just like adding another layer to the greenhouse, but still it can penetrate somehow. Um, and it, it's not it's not how it works. Different gases in the atmosphere have slight overlap with one another, but largely they cover different bands. And so um, the more of a certain band that you block, there's still a whole bunch of other stuff that's coming through. And you can only do so much. And that's what that um, leveling off effect comes from is you can only block a band so much before you've done it. Like, you know, <laughs> we're good. Um, it's, uh, now I think, I think that the way that we have our, our primary schooling is ineffe ineffective to understand it, but I'm not sure how you would explain it better to kids. So I don't know, but I think that, I think that once you're an adult, you should stop talking about the greenhouse effect. You know, uh, even greenhouses don't work the way they describe the greenhouse. No. Right? Uh, we artificially add CO2, which is, you know, they say this is what you're doing. They artificially add heat. I don't know a greenhouse operator that doesn't have heaters inside. The sunlight is not enough to warm it up just because you're adding CO2. They yeah, add I know. CO2 for plant growth, not to trap heat. I know a there. lot of people who add um, like copper piping and solar heated water through their greenhouse to raise the temperature. Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. And Anthony, I don't think you need to ask ever again perhaps why they do this. In the end it comes down to they don't talk about this stuff because it's inconvenient for their narrative. 
scientists, if they don't say the world is ending, funding gets smaller. Government, which funds, which funds the scientists, if the world is not ending, they don't get more power. In the end, it comes down to power and money. And let's face it, throughout, throughout history, that has always been behind most of the moves made by rulers and their, uh, their lackeys, their, uh, you know, uh, lick spittles. They, um, what gives me more control over a greater slice of the economy, people's lives? Well, whatever it is, the government promotes it. There was a, a, a hiccup in 1776. Uh, where they tried to create a different kind of government. And uh, since that time, there's been a long, slow encroachment uh, on liberty and on individual choice uh, with the government taking more power. And after the bomb, with government really getting involved in big funding big science, if it's not climate change, it's some other thing that scientists say, oh, we need more government funding on my yeah. discipline because the world's coming to an end. So anytime... You say, well, why aren't they talking about this, uh, the saturation effect? Or, uh, you know, I'm writing about the limited lifetime of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere right now. Well, it's because that's that doesn't advance their agenda, which is more resources and more power. Right. Yeah. And our commenters are making good points about, you know, how, uh, you know, greenhouses are you know, they stop convection, they pass light, but not air, that kind of thing. And that, that reminded me, you know, the alarmist side, they claim to be the scientific side, right? But they talk about our atmosphere as if it's literally the firmament, right? <laughs> like they talk about it, like we live in a closed system. And that right. is completely counter to how our atmosphere works. There's all sorts of space particles coming in and out all the time. There's all sorts of exchange Cosmic happening. Rays. Yeah. It's it's not a closed system at all, not even close. And like helium just leaves and it just goes forever, gone. <laughs> once you once you release helium out of a balloon, it goes into space and leaves the planet. So it's <laughs> um, the way that they talk about this stuff is is counter to science. And the more people can point this stuff out, the better for sure. But yeah, I, I want to be quick because we only have a couple minutes left here. And Anthony, I think you said that. You've got an appointment quickly after the show, but um, uh, we did have a super chat that I wanted to um, remark on quickly. Uh, Ray says, um, also, thank you, Ray, very much for the uh, donation. He said, you went negative against ethanol and biodiesel, I think. And yeah, at the our ICCC conference, I did give a critical <laughs> presentation about ethanol and biodiesel. Um what would I like? Nuclear can pr produce UV. Um, yeah, I am negative about ethanol and biodiesel. I don't think that it is wise long term to use so much food growing land for fuel when we already have fuel that is fossil fuels. And also, you know, I'm not saying that there's no room for green energy, so-called green energy um, fuels. Ethanol and biodiesel, I said at the end of my presentation, there's a lot of good uses for them. And in fact, they're probably not going to go anywhere, but we probably shouldn't be mandating its use by the government. Um, probably shouldn't be giving out so many subsidies to produce it. Uh, if it was really, if it's the additive that's going to uh, do the best for your vehicle, then it should be able to perform on its own and we shouldn't have to um, pay for it with our tax dollars. And also, um, I'm pretty happy with, in general, I'm happy with geothermal. I'm happy with fossil fuels. I'm happy with nuclear. I'm happy with um, reasonable utilization of wind and solar. Um, although I haven't seen too many circumstances where I think they really make uh, a net benefit for your grid, unless it's kind of an off-grid system. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to say that I'm, you know, against ethanol and biodiesel broadly. Um, every single energy source has a major detriment to it, mm. whether it's, you know, that it, it, it can't be stored so easily or 
that it's dangerous in one way or another, or that it has pollution associated with its use. Um, that doesn't mean that we abandon them altogether, because if we're looking for a perfect energy source that has no downsides, there is none, period. That's it. That's it. Um, and so okay. I'll give us the last couple of minutes here. But do we really want to talk about abandoning them? We abandon them? Look, there is no we. Government shouldn't be involved. <laughs> Collectively, it doesn't make good decisions for the most part. And it certainly hasn't with our energy system for the past 50 years, for sure. Um, we, we created the Department of Energy, and it's been wacky ever since then. Um, in the end, where solar makes sense, where wind makes sense, if biodiesel and ethanol make sense, let them compete in the marketplace. And to exactly. the extent that they are adopted by people voluntarily on their own, that's where they make sense and only there. I don't believe in some net social benefit. I don't even know what that, that means. In economics, you're not supposed to have that kind of thing. We make that stuff up. Uh, there are places well off the grid, ranches that I know of in Montana that are far away from any power line where it makes sense to have solar panels, to have a wind turbine, and to have diesel backup generators uh, and, and, and you know, a wood-burning stove, uh, where that makes sense. Because you're not going to run a power line at, you know, thousands of dollars uh, 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 or tens of thousands of dollars a mile to get to the ranch uh, house. But as far as government dictating that we are going to use this because they've decided it makes sense. Why? Oh, climate change. Well, since the fear of climate change is, uh, you know, the reality of climate change is not a disaster, there's no justification for the government mandating it because they think it's more efficient. Yep. So anyway. <laughs> All right. Let's sum up. So we've had, um, yeah, we've got a little problem there with our PowerPoint. It's going berserk. Oh. So anyway, <laughs> um, all right. They're coming after us. All right. So go, um, Andy, if you can just scroll down, I will tell you where to stop. Keep going. 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 More, 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 more. Now you're. Oh, well, it's not there. There it is. That's the one I've been looking for. All right. Climate-related deaths are going down. That's the bottom line here. There is no effect from climate change on people that is disastrous. Just not happening. There's no kaboom. There's no earth-shattering kaboom that they're predicting. It's not happening. Basically, we're in this... <laughs> All right. Um, you know, they, they we got guys talking about ticking time bombs. Mm. Not happening. Anyway, so I just want to sum up and say the claims that are being made are not happening. Do you guys disagree with that? Nope. Unless you're talking about the claims that are well within the physical sciences report, which tend to track more or less with reality. Um, sometimes <laughs> they do ignore some data, but uh, it's, man, yeah, the, the actual science reports of the IPCC aren't that bad. Um, not the summaries not, for policymakers, but the reports. Yeah, the, the actual working group reports, I do recommend that if people want to get a little bit of a headache, but learn what the actual discussion is and, you know, the sources that they're using for this, I suggest looking at the AR6 working group one report on uh, physical sciences or physical effects of climate change. It's a good one. Um, they have some interesting takes in there. Some of them you kind of roll your eyes at, but some of them are decent. Um and you will see that, that that is not a very alarming report whatsoever. But anything written for in summary form for policymakers or the synthesis reports are utter nonsense. And I would not recommend you read it. It's just painful. Uh, it's long-winded. It's complex when it doesn't have to be. It's like reading when I was in philosophy. There's a whole section of philosophy called logic and language that made my head hurt. Uh, I advocate instead what you do is you watch us every Friday and you read climate realism and you read climate at a glance 
and you go to some of our allies and that's where you find out the truth because we synthesize it and we synthesize it from the data. Yeah. Make not, me read it for not, you. Yeah. Make, make Linnea read it for you. Even to a lesser extent, God forbid, make me read it for you. Um, but uh, it's not alarming folks. There's no evidence that climate change poses a threat, an existential threat to human civilization. Yep. We're doing better than we ever have, and yet they don't want to look at it. They're crying wolf on a regular basis without any basis in reality. All right, that wraps up Climate Change Roundtable number 56. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank our panel, Linnea and Sterling. I also want to thank our viewers who asked some interesting and important questions. And I want to thank you for visiting us every week. Be sure to leave a like and be sure to subscribe and visit us on a weekly basis at climaterealism.com along with climateataglance.com. For the entire team at the Heartland Institute, I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate, wishing you a good day and a good weekend.